Good morning, and uh, greetings in Jesus' name, and welcome to this service. We're glad to see many of you here this morning, and um, yeah, it's good to be together on New Year's Day, I guess. it's uh, That hits every once in a while that Sunday falls on New Year's Day, and it happened again this morning. That uh, got me to thinking just how often this happens, that Sunday and New Year's Day coincides. So happily, Google has all the answers for those kinds of things, so I didn't have to look very far to find that out. And roughly about 10 to 11 times every every century, it hits um, it, it hits Sunday. And um, so then my next thought was, well, I wonder when the last time was it hit Sunday. Does anybody know offhand? So it wasn't that long ago. It was 2017. And uh, I was like, well, wait a minute, if, if it's that stacked in that close, why, it has to be more than 10 or 11 times every every century. But so I began to do a little bit more exploring, and I guess apparently with all the leap years and stuff, it, it goes steady by jerks, as you'd say. You'll have a stack of them real close, and then it'll go a while, and then another stack, and then it'll go a while. So anyway, we're kind of in a in a stacking mode right now. And uh, but just for your information, it'll be 2034 before it hits again. So um, it, it'll be a while. But I also wonder who preached in 2017 on New Year's Sunday. Boy, does anybody remember that? Boy, that'd be a stretch. I think I'd give you a prize if you could remember that. I couldn't even remember that. But it happened to be yours truly. I happened to preach that Sunday too. So uh, here we go again. So if you want to, you can turn to Isaiah 43. You know, New Year's is another time in life that we, I think we do anyway, we pause briefly and we consider the passage of time. Um, you know, there's there's other times that we pause briefly and consider the passage of time. It, it usually happens on birthdays and anniversaries of this and that. We do that. And it's it's part of numbering our days, isn't it? Um, you know, the psalmist asked God to teach him to number his days. And this is part of that numbering. You know, we, we think, okay, well, we just finished up a year. We're heading into another year. And we number those things. And uh, I think it's kind of interesting. I think, I think old people and young people enjoy numbering their days more than those that are maybe somewhat in between there. Because when you're old, or I'm sorry, when you're young, it feels like you're constantly looking for the next great thing to happen. And there's just a lot of great things happen there in those first 20 years, isn't there? You know, we got a number of people here that are anticipating license, and that's a big deal. And, you know, you finish up school. You know, you got all these kind of big events stacked pretty close in, in, uh, in the first 20 years of your life, in my estimation anyway. And then once, uh, once you kind of hit, once you kind of get past 20, 25, why well, it just seems like the years sort of run together and, and, um, and, you know, one day follows another. And, and I don't know, I, I guess it's that midlife hurried up pace or something. And I find it interesting that once a person hits a, oh, I'd say coming into their 70s, and it's for sure in their 80s, and you'll, and you, you take the courage to ask somebody, well, how old are you? They'll say, well, I'll be 82 on my next birthday. Like they, they can't wait till this happens. And you know, it's it's like suddenly that anticipation of of checking another year is a big deal again. So I'm not sure when that hits. hasn't hit for me yet. Um, um, but I will say this: I'm wise enough. I think I'm wise enough. I know I am 
to know that the better chunk of my life is behind me. I just don't anticipate living to be 102. Now, if I do, that'll be a surprise to me. I bet I don't anticipate that. So um, anyway, that's, um, that's the way it is. And I also, it's also true that as we age, I think that there's more interest in the past than in the future. And I think it's largely because we know that well, there's probably not a whole lot of future left. And as we age, our strength wanes and our, you know, there's just a whole lot more to talk about in the past and the future, maybe. And what is past, we can talk definitively about. None of us can talk very definitively about the future. Um, we can We can make some plans. But James says, if you do... You better say if the Lord wills, because you don't know if you're going to go into that city and do this or that tomorrow as you planned or not. But I can look behind me and say, yesterday I did this. That is etched in stone. There's no turning that back. That happened. It's going to lay there, and it is what it is. And that's why we say don't cry over spilled milk, because it doesn't matter how much you regret spilling that milk. It doesn't matter... How much you, how much you'd do it differently if you could do it differently. That milk is gone. It's on the floor and you've got to clean the mess up. And so there's no point in crying over it happened. And you could take that analogy many different ways. But I think God is good to us that in his wisdom, he withheld the future from us. We just don't know what the future holds. But that was wise of him because he knew that we as fallible humans could not handle that knowledge. He says in Isaiah, the past is, or the future is as good as the past to me. Uh, I, both are the same. It's equal. God knows exactly what's going to happen to you tomorrow, just like you knew what happened yesterday. Those things are equal to him, but not for us. I think it is wise of us. I know it is, and God even says this in his word. It is wise for us to use the past as somewhat a measurement or a metric of of things that we can say are probable for the future, okay? It's, it's the law of sowing and reaping. If we do this, it's most probable that this will happen. Now, there's some times that, that God in his mercy will take somebody that has sown to the wind... And, and he will redeem that person and he can do it for every person that wants this to happen. And the, 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 the reaping is not so much a whirlwind. It might still be some wind, but, but through God's mercy, there isn't that what should have happened doesn't. Okay. Does that make sense? That, the, that is, that's the way God works sometimes. However, we can, we can somewhat measure the future, at least materially, um, Bypass patterns, and that's wise and it's helpful, because as we often say, history repeats itself. And why does history repeat itself? History repeats itself largely because we as humankind are too lazy to do anything besides measure the future by our little um, span of time that we've lived, and that's a pretty small slice of history and, and, and when you think about it. So we're wise to to look at the past much farther back than whatever, you know, our little short span of time, even if, we, if we're if we 70, 80 years old, I would dare say. 
And thus we can avoid making mistakes over and over. However, in this passage here in Isaiah here this morning, in a different context, God actually has a little different instruction. Um, There's a lot of instruction in the Bible to remember the past, and we're not going to go there this morning. But God here says, I want you actually to forget the past and look to the future. But you have to understand it in context, and that's what we're going to try to do here this morning. We're going to, um, this chapter here, Isaiah 43, is uh, is nicely set up in four paragraphs. And we're just going to read a paragraph at a time, and then we're going to look at that a little bit, and we're going to see what God has for us, perhaps, here in this chapter this morning. So Isaiah 43 goes like this. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not... For I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable. And I have loved thee, therefore will I give men for thee, and people for thy life. Fear not, I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east, and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even every one that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory, I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Now, that's paragraph number one, and we're going to stop there and just talk about that a little bit. Isaiah, God through the prophet here, um, uses this first paragraph to establish or argue his ownership and superiority and relation with his people. And I'm not going to get real deep into the details here, but somewhat of an overview of what he has just said here in these first seven verses. The first thing I see is in... In verse 1, God created us. That's no news to anybody here this morning, in this audience anyway, but God created us, and because of that reason, we are his. We are God's on merit that he created us. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he repeats this in a different way. He says, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, in that context, he's talking more about a, a person that has been redeemed, and that's that's certainly certainly fits the context. I'm going to argue that it even goes further than that, and that we are God's because of creation, and we just become more God's whenever we um, allow Him to. To, uh, we surrender our lives to him, and through the Holy Spirit, we serve him in a, in a much better way. In fact, that's the only way we can truly serve him. But this is easy to forget. This is easy to forget that we are gods by merit of creation, and we selfishly think sometimes that we have the right to do as we please, and that, um, you know, we get a little individualistic with our thinking. And God allows us that choice many times. Like God is not down here micromanaging any of us. He allows us the choice. But by merit of creation, we do well to remember that and, and think about the fact that 
what we're here for. If you go to the book of Revelation, the 24 elders in Revelation 4 said, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure they are and were created. I'm going to suggest this morning that the biggest dilemma of an atheist is that he has no idea why he's here. No clue. Now, he may find a reason. He may, he may decide that he's on this planet to save the planet. And he may, he may go that, down that route. Or he may get into some other philanthropy or something like that. He may find a reason to exist. But he does not know his reason for existence. And he cannot know that because he does not know God. Also in verse 1 I see this little um, this little phrase, I have called thee by thy name. And if you notice here in verse 1, he says, I have created you, O Jacob, and have formed thee, O Israel. Now think about that a little bit. We, we all remember that back there when Jacob saw that ladder uh, there in his vision, that up to that point, everybody knew him as Jacob. But that day that angel said to him that wrestled with him, he said, now from now on your name's going to be Israel. And so he had a bit of an, a renaming happen there. And from, as we talk about his posterity, today we talk about the children of Israel, right? We talk about, we understand that. We don't, we don't often refer to them as the children of Jacob. I'd like, as I thought through that, I, I thought of this. It would be interesting to know, if, if I was to ask you, if, if you like your name. Do you like your name? I, you don't have to answer. But, yeah, I'm glad to see you do. Um, I, I remember I had a teacher once there in school that she told us she didn't like her name. I always thought that was a little odd. I never knew if I liked my name or not. I was good with it. I mean, you know, it was just, it was just my name. What was I going to do? And, and think about this. Um, your name is a gift from your parents. That's what it is. And, and I, there's very few people that don't give thought to what they named their children. I would, I would suspect anyway. I mean, at least we did. We bought books even and we looked through them and like, what do we want to name this child? You know, what, what does this, what does this name mean, etc. Well, where am I going with this? You know, your name is, is somewhat of a stamp of your parents' ownership of you. Okay. That's not quite the right word, but you know what I mean. They gave you that name, and they love you, and they that's what they wanted to call you and refer to you as. And um, I see here God loving Jacob so much and the children of Israel that he actually wanted to, to name them, right? I mean, that, that was part of that connection to God. And uh, I think it depicts the relationship uh, that God has with his children then and he has with us today. Um, I didn't research this, but it, I have a niggling feeling in my mind that there is some place in the in the New Testament, and maybe you can help me with this, where it talks about us receiving a new name. Is that true, or am I just imagining that? I, I thought of that this morning, and I didn't have time to research that. But let's let's not say it's there unless we find it. But I know this: God knows our name. I know that. All right, let's move on. Verse two. Building on this relationship here, God promises that because he knows them, because he has created them, he's going to be right with them during the most difficult times of their existence. And we understand the parabolic um, terms that are used here in verse 2. 
You know, he says, um, when you go through the waters, the rivers, they won't overflow you. When you go through the fire, you won't be burned. He's talking about literal impossibilities. And yet, it had happened. Uh, the, the, the children of Israel had passed through waters at least twice, coming through the, the wilderness experience, where the waters should have overflowed them, and they didn't. All right, They stood up in heaps and so on. And I also thought of the, uh, the old martyr Poly- Polycarp back in the old days, that it was said he was tied to a stake and he would not burn. And the flames kept burning and he would not burn. He was in the fire and the fire wouldn't overtake him. And so finally, the man had to be executed by the sword. But again, big picture, God cares for, cared for them and he cares for us. And even in our most trying circumstances, we want someone beside us that knows our name and has created us. And God said, I'm that person. And then in verses 3 to 7, it, it sort of seems to be a, a summary here of, um, of uh, God again telling them that he will never lose track of his people and that they will be protected from the evil of the world. And I, and I find it kind of ironic in verse 4. He said, you're precious in my sight. And you have been honorable. Were the children of Israel largely honorable? When you think through it, not really. They were not the most honorable people. And and as we move through this chapter, it'll come up how that they weren't honoring God. And yet God was saying, I'm overlooking that. I'm calling you honorable because because you're precious. You're mine. I named you, etc. And he says, I love you and I will defend you. And then he gives a picture there in verses 6 and 7 of, of a regathering of his people back to their homeland from where they were scattered. And again, you can read that literally. You can read that uh, somewhat in a parable. Uh, some would look at that and say that that is prophetic of the um, recent ingathering of the children of Israel back to, um, to their, the Jews back to um, the land of Israel. I'm not going to get into that. It could be. It may not be, but it could be. At the very least, it it gives a word picture of how much God cares for his people. He does not lose track of them. And then in verse 7, he says, everyone that's called by my name can claim this promise. And that applies to them then. That applies to us today. Um, No matter what this year holds, This is a promise that we can claim. God will not lose track of us because we have the family family name. He says, everyone that is called by my name, do you carry that name? If you do, you can claim these promises. All right, let's go into the second paragraph now. Verse 8. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is truth. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there is no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no other. I have declared and I have saved, I have showed, when there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and I am God. Yea, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? 
And we'll stop there and comment on these on this paragraph just a little bit. Now God, after he establishes his uh, sovereignty in the first seven verses, he now says, I'm going to bring witnesses out to what I just said. And again, he uh, he uses um, language that is an impossibility, really, in, in verse 8. But he said, first of all, I'll start with the blind and the deaf. What he's saying is, is my my greatness, my sovereignty, the things I have done for you are so obvious, can be cannot be refuted, and they're so in your face that even blind people and deaf people get it. Like, you know, usually when you think of witnesses, you need somebody that saw it, right? Or they heard it. And he said, I don't even need that. It's so obvious you can be blind and deaf and you're still going to get it. God over has overwhelming abilities that can be clearly shown in the past and in the present for those who are willing to look at it. And we say that sometimes, don't we? You know, uh, I've said it. I've had it said to me. You know, I'm looking for something, and someone says, "You must be blind." Well, I wasn't blind, but I was acting like I was blind, right? And and it was so obvious that it was unbelievable that I couldn't get it. And that's kind of what God is saying here. You know, you can be blind and get it. Then he he brings forth a a second set of witnesses in verse nine. He, he now challenges all the nations of the world to come together and witness. And his question is, is there any God among these nations that can do what I did? Like, you know, bring them up. If they're here, you know, let's talk about it. But he, the, the insinuation is there is not. And who can help but not think of the, uh, of the little Mount Carmel experience that had happened in these people's past where Elijah is up there. And uh, he goads those false prophets, and he, and, he, and he tells them, hey, you know, holler louder, you know, you're God sleeping, etc. You remember that. And then whenever it was time for God to, to bring down the fire, all it took was wet wood, a wet altar, wet meat, and a, a prophet that just said, God, will you honor me in the sight of these people? And it happened. And, and God said, bring, bring forth the nations. Um, I, I'm ready to challenge... I'm ready to go up against any God of any nation because what has happened in your past cannot be matched in any way with the the gods and the nations. And then in verse 10 and 11, he said, now we've talked about the blind, the deaf people, we've talked about the nations, and he said, furthermore, you are my witnesses. And he calls the people of Israel who had experienced these things as his witnesses. He said, there's no God like me before, no God like me after, and um, you, you've experienced it. Um, you have experienced my, um, my salvation in the past. And then he points out in verse 12, he said, and if you'll remember with me, he says, if you'll remember the things, the things that I did that were the most profound in your past is when you did not have another God that you were worshiping. And, and that's, that's Israel's past. What, what happened? Look at the book of Judges. You know, they would, they, they would return to God because some judge would come along and return them to the Lord. Well, then they'd slip again and they'd go back to worshiping another God. And what would happen? They'd go back into captivity. And you have that flipping and flopping all through Israel's history that when they insisted on serving another God, things went poorly. And when they didn't, things went well. 
And in its heart, it's almost unfathomable that the people didn't get it. But one generation followed another, and it seemed like the mistakes were repeatedly made. But God says, I can work the best whenever there is no other God. Well, actually, he says, I can't work at all when there's another God among you. And I had to think, you know, how much of that applies to us? Um, Does God look down on us today? And say, so, you know, I could really do, I could really do more things in your life if there wasn't another God standing in the way and, uh, and taking your time and taking your allegiance and, um, and these kinds of things. Um, and my mind went to many things. You know, we, we live in a land that, you know, we have largely become self-sufficient because we can. We have material things abound and there's something about monetary security that messes with us. And we begin to put our security in things that we shouldn't. And um, then we buy insurance to protect that. And, and it's just a vicious cycle that just builds on itself. And I, I many times ponder, if God could truly write us a letter, what he would say, do we have other gods among us? And it, it's always true that in the history of the children of Israel, and I would say in our history as well, that the most profound things happened when when there were no options. They were out of options. Like they were hungry, and that's when the manna fell. They were thirsty, and that's when the water came out of the rock. They were up against the Red Sea, and that's when the waters parted. On and on it goes. Well, in summary here, in verse 13, God, God establishes once again his omniscience, omnipotence. And the impossibility to thwart his plans. He said, uh, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, I'll do my thing, and no one will stand in my way. You know, that sounds arrogant, but it isn't, because it's God. Like, none of us could say that. None of us should say that. But God can say that, right? Reminds me of Pharaoh whenever Moses came to him and said, you know, God wants us to go to the wilderness and serve him. And, and, and Pharaoh said, who is God? Who is God that I should obey his voice? Let's go to part three now, paragraph three. Verse 14. Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I have sent to Babylon and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans whose cry is in the ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea, and a path in the mighty waters, which bringeth forth the chariot and horse, the army and the army and the power, they shall lie down together, they shall not rise. They are extinct, they are quenched as tow. Remember not remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing, now it shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field shall honor me, the dragons in the isles, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people have I formed for myself, they shall show forth my praise." 
Now, I never did give you a title for this message, but it's found right here in these, in these verses. Behold, I will do a new thing. So now God um, promises a new thing to these people, and he establishes his sovereignty once again through promising good things based on the backdrop of the uh, previous verses that we just uh, commented about. Now, in the setting here, these verses are actually, Isaiah is speaking prophetically, because what God is saying through the prophet in this new thing that he is prophesying would happen, like, these people hadn't even gone into exile yet, and yet God is promising they would come out of exile. All right, so he's really getting, he's really going into the future uh, quite a ways here in this particular uh, prophecy here. But in verse 14, he prophetically declares that Babylon will one day be brought low. And in the context that these people heard that, that was an impossibility. At this point, Babylon was a rising power in the, in the, among the nations. They were the ones out doing the conquesting and conquering nations and would conquer the children of Israel at some point in the future. They hadn't yet experienced that. But to the hearer of that day, it would be the equivalent of when World War II was all over. All right? And, and, the U.S. and the Allies had come out of that thing victorious, that someone would prophetically say the U.S. will be brought low. Like, it didn't make sense. No, they're on their way up. They won't be brought low, right? It, it didn't fit what, the, what people thought about Babylon at that time. But in verse 15 and 16, he interjects why they should think this way. And again, he says, I am the Lord. That's why you should, first of all, because just because I'm God, that's why you should believe this. And um, then he said in verse, um, in verse 16 and 17, he, he, he jogs their memory again back to the, uh, their deliverance from Egypt. And he talks about how that the Egyptian armies had gone down into the sea and they were extinct. They were no more. Those people were gone. And he's like, just like I did that, I'll take Babylon some, down someday too. And, and he speaks in, in terms they could understand, and then he makes a prophecy about, about Babylon based on that. Okay, so now in verse 18 and 19, it seems like God pivots here a little bit. It says, now I want you to quit remembering the, the, those things, all right? He said, those were great and mighty and wonderful things that happened, but I'm going to do a new thing. Like, there's going to be something coming to you that you don't even, you don't even understand, and I'm not even taking the time to explain to you, but it's going to be a new thing. And he said, it's even happening now. Shall you not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert and, and on and on. And he, he again says that just like it happened to you in the past, it will again happen to you in the future. We have the, we have the advantage of sitting here many, many years later and can look at that and say, sure, that makes sense. There was going to be a day when they would go into Babylon. God would do a new thing. He would bring them back out of Babylon and they would go through the wilderness and these things that you typically encounter in the wilderness would not be a hardship for them because again, God was their God. Now, I had to wonder as I was reading this, is this 
It, could this passage have been an inspiration to Nehemiah whenever he wanted to go back to his people there, when you read through the book of Nehemiah, and the king said, sure, go ahead and go. And by the way, I'll send an army with you to protect you through that wilderness as you're going. And Nehemiah said, oh, you know, I've bragged on God so much. How can I take that army? I told this king that I trust God, and now I'm going to take his army. And so he said to the king, he said, no, he said, I'm not going to take your army. You keep your army. But then he called the people together and he said, listen, let's have a prayer meeting because here's what I did. I told the king how great God is. I refused his army, and yet we still have to go through this wilderness. And so it says how they had that prayer meeting, and they fasted, and they prayed, and God took them through that wilderness just like he said. Maybe that inspiration came right here from this prophecy that uh, the prophet had made. We don't, we don't know that, but it could be. In verse 21, then, Another new thing I think that he is he's saying what happened. He said, the day will come. It's not happening right now, but the day will come when you as my people will want to show forth my praise. That's going to happen. That was not Israel's past and that was not Israel's present. They had so much they, they were always so tempted to serve other gods, and they did it over and over and over and over again. But once they went into Babylon and they spent 70 years there and they came back, never ever again did they set up a God and bow down to it. Never happened again. Now they had plenty of problems, but we're not going to talk about that. The new thing is that cured them of idol worship. That thing took care of it, that, that, that Babylonian um, captivity. And that was a, that was a new thing. So the overriding principle here I see here in this third paragraph is that past experiences can be a guide for us, but God can do things in the future that are unexpected, that we don't know about, new things, uh, things that we have no way to even imagine because they are not part of what we have experienced or what we know about but it could be a new thing for us. And we should not let those things catch us by surprise because God is God. He can do what he will. Let's read the fourth paragraph. <clears throat> but thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob, but thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. Thou hast not brought me the small cattle of thy burnt offerings, neither hast thou honored me with thy sacrifices. I have not caused thee to serve with an offering, nor wearied thee with incense. Thou hast bought me no sweet cane with money, neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices. But thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Put me in remembrance, let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Thy first father hath sinned, and thy teachers have transgressed against me. Therefore I have profaned the princes in the sanctuary, and have given Jacob to the curse, and Israel to reproaches. Now that's kind of a downer way to end up this chapter, and I realize that, and I'm not going to comment to it a lot, other than basically what this paragraph is saying is God is now coming down to the way things really are. 
he says, um, your, your faithlessness and your transgressions, I understand what they are, but he goes on to say in the latter verses, he said, I'm willing to forgive you of those things because, again, of who I am. I love you. I have chosen to blot out your transgressions because I am sovereign. I have chosen to love you despite your ways. And he stresses in verse 23, he said, I'm not burdening you with my requests. Um, any request that God had made of his children back in the law were, was not unreasonable. I mean, he asked for a tenth, right? He said, I want one-tenth of your flocks, of your fruits, of your money, etc." But nine of those ten were, were theirs. I mean, God just wanted a tenth, see. God was asking them to serve him willingly and without grudging. And I think this harks back to our Sunday school lesson today. You know, we can look at the, at Sunday as a, um, as just a drag and, and, a, and, a, and, you know, we can't wait till it's over. Or we can look at it with, with joy and do it from the heart. And we discussed that. We're not going to go into that anymore. But basically what God was saying is, you know, you're doing these things because you have to. And he said, if you would change your, your heart and you would do them because you want to, you would find these things a joy. And uh, you would find what, what kind of experience it could actually be in your life. What's the lessons for us today in, uh, uh, here on New Year's Day as we as God's people relate to the past, present, and future. So real quickly here, God's people relating to the past. I think we need to learn that we can learn things from the past that help us to higher ground in the future. And this chapter over and over reminds us of that. Um, to the extent that God has showed himself strong to them and us in the past, we can never forget that. We shouldn't. To the extent that the past helps us to resolve to do better, it serves us well. And to the extent that the basic laws of sowing and reaping serves us, let's use it. All right? You do this, this will happen. That's the past bounced onto the future. Number two, let's not allow the past to cripple our ability to serve effectively and grow in the future. Ezekiel 18 uh, the prophet lays out the, the problem, some of the problem that the children of Israel are facing there is they said, this is how my dad did it. And because my dad did it this way, I can't help myself. And that's the way I do it. And so I'm just a victim, victim, right? And and we see that in our society. And I feel like too much in our churches even that we, we like to to languish with a victim mentality that I can't change anything. This is just what it is, and i got to accept it. Well, you know what? God can do a new thing. He could do a new thing for the children of Israel, and he can do a new thing for us. You know, as I was studying this, I had to think of um, of my grandmother, and that's as much as I'll say. I won't say which side of the family it was, but she never could ride a bike. A basic thing of riding a bike. Anybody here can't ride a bike? I bet not. But the reason she couldn't ride a bike is because the first time she tried to ride a bike, she fell off. And that was it. Wouldn't try to ride a bike again. Now, granted, the bikes back in those days were a little clunky and probably easier to fall off. But the woman went to her grave, could never ride a bike. That's pretty minimal. 
But what she was doing is she was she left that past experience hinder her from the fun of riding a bike. See. Here the prophet, in a prophetic way, tells them to forget the past. Because for them, the past was not a pleasant memory. There was too many judgments and things. And, and um, he wanted them to forget that and remember the things that would happen or to think about the things that God could do in the future. I suspect that all of us, if we're honest, have things in the past that could cripple our spiritual effectiveness now and in the future if we allow them to. I suspect that many of us probably have things that we did that we regret, right? Things that if we could do them differently, we would do them differently. We've maybe been mistreated by somebody in the past, or maybe a misfortune has struck us that we can't explain. And we begin to measure our future by our past, and we don't imagine that anything can be different than what we have experienced in the past. Now, there, there is a universal truth here that, that I ran across here recently that I think explains some of why we get into this rut. So when bad things happen to us, whatever they may be, the feeling, the bad feeling that we get from that bad thing feels worse and lasts longer than the euphoria that we experience when a good thing happens to us in our lives. Is that you follow that? So when, does, does good ever feel as, as good as bad feels bad? I would say that not so. When I feel bad, I feel really bad. But when, but when you, when something good happens, yes, you feel good, but there's something about that euphoria and that goodness that doesn't feel as bad as the badness in the length of time that that lasts. So I don't know how to say that, but I think there's, there's some truth to that. And we can hang on to that. We can hang on to that bad thing and just let that define us and just move along and just let that just keep us in the gutter. We just can't rise above that thing. And, and it just, it just pulls us down. And so we're, we're constantly these people that the sun can be shining and, and life can be well. And we, we complain because we can't see that. We cannot see the good around us because we just choose to live in that, in that gutter or whatever. You know, think about this. Paul made some huge poor choices in his life. I mean, this man persecuted the church. This man stood there and watched Stephen be stoned and actually was party to it. But Paul says, I forget those things that are behind and I reach for the things that are before. And I can't help but think that Paul had that in mind whenever he said that. He chose to let those things go. All right, the past cannot be the only measurement that we use to imagine the future. Peter talks about scoffers in the last days that would come and say, all things will continue as they were, as they are. You know why? All they were measuring the future was, is the past. And Peter says, I, you, not, you can't think that way because one day the Lord's going to come back and your future is going to be so disrupted that there is nothing that has happened in the past that we can be remotely close to what's going to happen in the future. Now that's, that's big picture. I would say that you can take that and make that even apply that specifically to our lives. Can God do a new thing in your life? Absolutely he can. 
He did a new thing for the children of Israel, and he can do new things for us. How do we relate to the present? I'm not going to mention this much, but I'm going to give you two instructions that I think will help us live well in the present. Really, the present is just a cutting edge between the future and the past. I mean, this moment, you're, you're, making, the, you're making the future right now. You're making the past. Like, the, the, the past hour is gone. We're not going to relive that Sunday school lesson we just talked about, right? We're making history as we go. Two things. This is our assignment. The proverb writer says, Let thine eyes look right on. Let thine eyelids look straight before thee. Ponder the path of your feet, and let all your ways be established. Turn not to the left hand or to the right. Remove your foot from evil. Now, if you follow those instructions, your future is going to look pretty bright. God comes along, and he has a promise. He gives us right along with that. He says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he delights in his way. If we take those two principles and we marry them, our future will be just fine. We're going to consider our way. We'll do our part. God is ordering our steps. And our future will be just fine. Jesus says, tomorrow has enough problems. Don't worry about it. Live in the, live in the present. All right, and lastly, what about our future? Well, This whole passage we read, God is asking the people to look into the future with confidence. God's people needed to see the big picture. They needed it then, we need it now. And when we grasp that, it doesn't matter what the future is, it's going to be a new thing and it'll be okay. God through the prophet Jeremiah says, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Now that expected end should be probably more worded, to give you an end that will be satisfying, to give you an end that you will like. And the secret for experiencing this promise is to walk closely with God. So here is the challenge. As you and I stand on the cusp of a new year, can I grasp the hand of God? Can you grasp the hand of God? Can you commit the future that the songwriter says is all unknown, but realize that through that, Jesus is on the throne? I don't know how you'll remember 2022. Likely it'll be a mixed mixed bag for, for us. Likely you had some things that you'll remember with fondness. Perhaps you had an experience in 2022 that just overrides the whole year and you remember with a lot of regret. That, that's possible. It's possible you will look back on 2022 with somewhat disappointment. That's possible. But those are things we can't change. Those things are gone. It's past. Can we look? Can we grab a hold of God? And because of God, can we look to that future with anticipation that God wants us to look at it with? Can we allow the past to go and not let that define our future? I promise you, because all of God's promises are yea and amen, that's what it says, I can take this passage this morning and tell you that God can and he will do a new thing for you if you will let him. And I ask that you and I would let him do that in this coming year.